If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. And welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. From apprehending highwaymen to tackling Victorian crime explosions, British law enforcement has changed beyond all recognition over the past few centuries. In our latest Everything You Wanted to Know episode, we're tackling the British police. Our production editor, Spencer Mizzen, put your questions on the subject to Chris Williams, senior lecturer in history at the Open University and author of Police Control Systems in Britain, 1775 to 1975. Chris, we're here to talk about the history of the British police. Now, I wanted to start the interview by rewinding the clock to the days before Bobby's walk the beat. Lollies Exo on Instagram wants to know how difficult was it to catch criminals before the establishment of a police force in Britain? So I guess the question here is, what did police enforcement in Britain look like before the advent of a professional force? Well, the first thing is to think about the fact that we've still not yet got one force. We've got like, you know, in England and Wales, 44 kind of which together produce a service. So British policing is quite fragmented compared to, say, French policing. On the other hand, compared to American policing, it's pretty coherent. But in the 18th century, policing looked a lot more like American policing does now in that you've got, you don't really have this idea of lots of police forces. You know, it's a local government function. And so towns and cities would control their police forces or or little areas within towns and cities. Particularly, there's no London-wide police force. The city of London itself has quite a good level of police structures. It's probably the most heavily policed part of Great Britain in, say, around like 1750, 1760. Um, And you've you've got pockets of quite sort of heavily policed areas and you've got sort of under-policed areas. On the other hand, of course, our idea of under-policed is we're sort of thinking there should be a police force out there that can respond to calls for crime. But like in 1750, there wasn't really that expectation. Your, Your police constable was in rural areas a local guy who could um who could read because that was an important part of the job often uh, a publican or a um an artisan someone who made things for a living probably not likely to be someone like an agricultural laborer so someone who had a bit of property and every year the the parish would get together and would say who's going to be constable next year and it's a it's a job you can pick up fees for for things like moving people on for successfully prosecuting people and you can kind of work on your expenses a bit um but it's a bit of a pain in the bum if you've got a business to run. It takes some time out. So what would normally happen in your average sort of medium-sized parish in England or Wales, uh, things are always a little bit different in Scotland, and I'll come to that later. Um, the 
every year someone's going to volunteer to be the constable when it's Buggins' turn. Often places by about 1750, 1760, the same guy would get the hang of it and would begin to sort of to do it as more of a sort of semi, semi-career, as a job on the side. So although in theory it was what was known as an amateur role, are you doing it for love, actually you're doing it for fees, and these people gradually began to sort of get more, get better at it. And so they had powers, for example, if there was a, a robbery or a burglary, a serious crime called a felony, um, they could go into someone's house without a warrant in order to chase criminals. But normally, if they wanted to do anything, they'd have to go to the nearest magistrate another amateur, this time a, a landowner, a minor gentry, and say, I'd like a warrant, please, to arrest this person or, or to um, search this house. And so they've got the power to sort of be part of the kind of eyes and ears of the criminal justice system very locally in one particular parish. Now, it's different in towns and cities. In towns and cities, your guy who is doing it every year, well, he can make quite a lot more money at this, so he's more likely to make a career out of it. And sometimes the man who's nominally constable for a big urban parish, who's a sort of respectable businessman, will hire this guy who can do the job as an assistant and the respectable businessman gets to go on the books as the constable and he gets to have some of the fees but mainly he's he's passing them on to the local man often for example a publican runs a pub um, who's who's good at catching criminals and knows the law so gradually the thing's professionalizing and you also get in the, in the 18th century some guys who pretty much decide i can make money catching criminals and so i'll do that and one of the things you get in the early 18th century particularly is guys who think the best way to catch the criminal is to set the crime up yourself and collect the reward because that's where the real money is so there's this real sort of fade fading through from you know people who are doing it who are in there to to um make sure the law is enforced and people who are in there to make a lot of money by any means necessary. So the the big difference then, 18th century, is it's complicated, it's local, and you've also got guys who are pretty badly paid who are watchmen. Their job every night is just to stand there calling the hour of the watch, making sure there's nothing too violent happens throughout the night. These are kind of pretty lowly people mainly, to be honest. Um, they've not got the same power of arrest that a constable has. Often they're working for a constable who's who's like in a nice, cosy, warm office somewhere else in the town. Right, that, that takes us nicely on to my next question, which was submitted by Steve Hopkins, also on Instagram. He asked, how did the first professional police force come about? Now, so I was I was wondering if you can give us kind of a potted history of the advent of the first professional force or forces. How did they come into being and, and were they the world's first? Well, this is one of their million dollar questions. It depends what you mean by first professional police and force. All of it can be problematised. The Met keep on claiming it's them, but that isn't actually true. If you look, I mean, well, we're talking about Britain, but it's, re- it's really hard to untangle the histories of policing in Britain without looking at Ireland, um, where you've got much less democratic government, you've got much less legitimacy, and you've got people, um, it's been ruled essentially from London, a lot of the time via Dublin Castle. And so in 1786, Dublin gets a police force across the whole city that's patrolling all the time, it's uniformed, um, and this one's carrying guns because of the way that the nature of British authority in Ireland requires them to do so. Um, And then in 1800 in Glasgow, you get an unarmed this time, preventive police force, uniformed, covering the whole city. Um, And so if you you go to Glasgow Police Museum and say, oh, wasn't the Met the first uniformed police force? They don't actually throw you out anymore, but they'll give you a flea in your ear. Um, What the Met was, was the first um, professional police force that kind of cut across existing local government lines. 
So whereas London had had some pretty efficient police forces, because some of the parishes in London are pretty big, so parishes like St Mollybone, they've got 10, 20, 30,000 people in them, late 18th, early 19th century, and they employ constables and watchmen who are, you know, there's preventive, so there's supposed to be there to stop you committing crime. You've got supervision, so you've got constables, sergeants, inspectors. And actually, when you look at the sums, they were employing more people in, that, in Marleybone in 1828 to go around preventing crime than the Met put in Marleybone in 1829 when they arrived. So the Met's really all about a whole city having its own police force for the first time and that not being local government but answering to the Home Secretary via the um, police commissioners um, of the city. So that's the big difference. So things like uniforms, things like the idea of prevention and also the thing about being habitually unarmed, which is kind of what your your amateur constables were as well, Um, but that isn't the case for what's going on in Ireland. You know, all these kind of come together at different points and so... The Met kind of gets the credit for this, but a lot of cities around Britain are also doing similar kind of things at about the same time. Um, and so it's complicated, <laughs> is the answer to that question. Who was the main driving force behind the advent of these forces? Is there one particular figure we can pin this on? You can't quite pin it all on Robert Peel, but he's the guy who is the Home Secretary. And when he was earlier Secretary for Ireland um, in about 18, you know, the mid-1810s, 1816, 17, 18, and he's running this Dublin police force, which is, has been created in 1786, and he's seen that do the thing. He also, because there's a lot of unrest and rebellion in Ireland at the time, is responsible for pushing through legislation to get rural police in Ireland as well. So he's already created and reformed a number of police forces. He doesn't just turn up in London, look at London. He's the guy who's been running Ireland for the British government. And he's Home Secretary in 1829. And for about... 10, 15 years before that, a lot of parliamentary committees had had sat and had said, look, we know what would probably solve many of London's crime problems and disorder problems. It would be a more unified force, you know, rather than having like a patchwork where some parishes like Marleybone are very well patrolled, but then other parishes, particularly because at this time, 1820s, London's expanding to the west in particular. So places like Acton, Ealing, they're, st- they're, they're rural villages in law, but they're actually thriving suburbs, 20, 30, 40,000 people, more people moving in, and the law enforcement structures there are totally overwhelmed. And so a lot of the core for a, a London-wide force isn't coming from the bits near the centre that are well-policed and it certainly isn't coming from the City of London that, that successfully keeps its own police force to this day. Um, it's coming from the suburbs where people are saying we've got theoretically a parish constable system but we're, we're now part of a city. Sort this out. And so that, I think, is the tip, one of the tipping triggers that allows Peel to get this plan through. Um, the other one, of course, is is about order and riots and disorder. 1780, the Gordon riots, um, mainly of an anti- start off as an anti-Catholic riot, become just an anti-government riot. Now, almost, the Gordon rioters pretty much took over London for five days. They burned down half the prisons. They're attacking houses of prominent government figures. Eight, in 1821, um, Queen Caroline, who's very popular, who was who was like had this this messy divorce with. Um, with the king, um, who was very unpopular. Um, she dies and her funeral is taken over by the London crowd. Again, it, this turns into a riot. And London doesn't have any kind of form of order maintenance force at all that, that can cope with the whole, of, the whole of London deciding that it wants to take over a funeral and turn it into a riot. And that, I think, is another important tipping point in the 1820s when Peel's able to convince enough 
local government and enough parliamentary figures that what we need to do now is have a new thing. And that's when he gets the Met through. He doesn't actually get rid of any existing police forces. So all the um, Bow Street people, who are the kind of semi-professional constables, they keep going and they coexist with the Met for 10 years in quite an uneasy arrangement. Um, but Peel kind of is able to get that big bang through. And I mean, there's a lot of different reasons why. But if you want to pick on two, I would say it's about under-policed suburbs and the problem of crime there and the big problem of political disorder. But do we have any... Figures on what happened to crime rates in in the wake of the advent of these of these forces. Well, one of the things about crime rates is that if there's no one counting, you don't know how much crime there is. And once the police arrive on the scene, one of the things they do is start counting. So it's really tricky to know. Um, and the big crimes, the crimes of um, like highway robbery, are almost already gone. I mean, the British criminal justice system in the early 19th century. So around between about 1790 and about 1815, they put a lot of attention into catching highwaymen. And the old police force can do that quite well. You know, old police, they can chase them, they can find them, they can get them prosecuted and they can get them executed. Then, the, So then British criminals kind of become, they, they respond to this and they do more, they, they tend to, they turn to do more but less lucrative crimes. And the old police can't respond to that quite so well, whereas the new police, which is a sort of more of a everyday, low-level, keeping an eye on people, do seem to be able to respond to that a bit better. At least that's the theory. But there isn't any systematic collection of what crimes are committed until 1856, and it comes in at the same time as, for the first time ever, every local authority is obliged to create a police force. So it's really difficult to know. And police also are able to kind of not necessarily manipulate, but there's a long tradition of, you know, if you're a police force who's been measured by a clear-up rate, that gives you an incentive to not record certain forms of crime if you can possibly avoid it, because then your clear-up rate goes up. And there's a long history of this, which really, the Home Office never really cracked that problem until the 1980s, 1990s, when they started funding the British Crime Survey, which uh, which is now the Crime Survey of England and Wales, which solves the problem by just asking 40,000 randomly selected people have you been a victim of crime? And that works for quite a lot of crimes. And you can then measure that against the how, many, how much crime is getting through the police recording systems and start leaning on police forces to do better, which I think by now has in fact happened. So counting crime is always a really kind of slippery figure, basically. OK, HXAM4 on social media wants to know, how tough was training for the police in the Victorian era? So... What did it take to become a police officer in those early days? And from what sections of society were early police officers uh, most often recruited? Training was very tough because there wasn't any. (laughs) In early days of the Met, you're essentially, you're you're put in a room with your instructions, asked to memorise them and then sent out the next night for a fortnight with someone else and then then on your own. So you learned on the job then, basically. You look nearly all of it by by the end of Victoria's reign, by the eighteen eighties, eighteen nineties. It's gone a little bit better in that you're spending like a, you're often in many places, but not everywhere. You're spending a fortnight in a classroom, being talked at by an inspector, and again you're being you're being asked to memorise your rule book, which has got a, a lot bigger since eighteen twenty nine, eighteen thirty seven, um, and then you're then you're sent out as a probationer. But actually, it's very much a, a, a state of. Um, if someone's willing to do the job, if they can read or write, if they're healthy and fit, and if they're tall, 
then they're pretty much in. And then it's whether or not they last becomes the important thing about whether they make their career as a police officer or not. Um, in terms of the people, being a police officer was a very difficult, quite dangerous job in an era in the early 19th century where a lot of jobs are difficult and dangerous. What it was, um, which a lot of other jobs weren't, was secure. So if you could just keep on doing it, you keep on getting paid. Whereas if you are working in nearly any other sector, the possible exception of the army, um, if with it, when demand went down for whatever it was you were doing, well, that was it. You know, there's no unemployment insurance. There's no, there's, there is a, there's a, the, the, the poor law will give you food. So as long as you go back to the parish you're from, you're not going to starve to death. But apart from that, that there isn't the kind of safety net that we've had, you know, since the 1920s, 1930s, 1940s. So um, the the attraction of being a police officer is that it's a secure job. And by the end of the century, you'll get a pension as well. You'll definitely get a pension. And in the mid-century, if you keep your nose clean, you'll get a pension. And again, it's one of the first working class occupations to carry a pension. So it's got security going for it, but it's also very boring. It's often quite dangerous. And it's something that a lot of people take up a job as a police officer for a few for a few weeks, a few months, particularly people who've just moved into the big city. Then they can kind of make some contacts and think, right, I'll jack this in and get something that's more lucrative, more interesting. But I'm not controlled all the time. I'm not controlled by, I've got to wear a uniform. I'm not. The other thing, of course, way up until the 20th century, if a police officer wants to get married, his um, superiors have to okay the person they're going to marry. Uh, they've got to register their address. It's a highly controlled life. Um, it suits some people, but a lot of people, they, they try it for a bit, decide they don't like it, and out they go. Okay, now this is a really popular question among uh, internet searches, and that is, why didn't Britain's policemen and women carry guns? Um, MFHQ, also on Instagram, asks, how did police arms change from swords and guns to the more defensive truncheons? Well, they start off unarmed um, by, with firearms. I mean, if you think about it, an early 19th century firearm is actually something you've got to take out and think about and load. You can't really carry it around loaded with any degree of safety. It's not the kind of, it's not a late 19th century firearm where you can carry it around in your pocket, take it out and use it. It's actually something that takes a bit of skill to use. And basically your, your everyday constable isn't trusted with that. Your kind of thief takers like Bow Street Runners might occasionally have carried them, but would generally, it's often more trouble than it's worth. So they start off armed with a truncheon, but also with a cutlass often. So places like Birmingham, their police force comes in in the 1840s, particularly to fight Chartists, the radicals who wanted the vote. And their standard equipment is a cutlass. So that's a sword, a short sword, the kind of sword you could use without a great deal of skill. It was a sort of standard Navy boarding weapon. And, and they're carrying that around as well. And Gradually over the 19th century, the cutlass sort of gets left in the office more often and the truncheon is there. Although there's this whole episode that we seem to have forgotten about, which is in the 1880s and 1890s, thousands of police officers in England did carry guns, um, in particularly in the Met, but also in other cities like Birmingham. Um, there's a spate of burglaries. The 1880s, 1890s, the first time cheap pistols become available. You can walk into any shop. There's no firearms law at all until after the First World War. You can walk into a shop, anyone can, and buy a pistol. And so there's a lot of these around, and police officers get worried about this. And so they demand the right to carry guns, and they're 
um, their bosses say, yeah, okay, you can, you can carry guns. And so a lot of police forces, including the Met, for not for the city centre beats, but for the kind of the lonely suburb beats, say, yeah, and you can carry a pistol as well. So British police have been armed. And obviously some British police still are armed. Um, what's, and indeed have always, there's always been a, there's always been a point at which some British police are armed and some are, but most aren't. And that's kind of not really changed. Um, what has changed is the sort of degree of formality about who's armed and who isn't. So much of it is to do with an arms race with the public. And so when there's a lot of firearms around, police feel they need more firearms. I mean, right, of course, right now, there are actually very few um, firearms around. Um, and at the moment, if you look at um, other unarmed forces, for example, of which there are about maybe three or four, um, they're all pretty much, they're all living in societies where there's not a great deal of firearms around, with the exception of New Zealand. Uh, but also, they're all they're all not completely unarmed. They all have more more or less. Um, some officers are armed, and some aren't. So the bobby on the beat might be unarmed, but that doesn't mean that British police aren't because they are. So, would you argue to an extent then that countries where the police do carry arms that is proved counterproductive? I'm not sure, although there's a really interesting ex social experiment did in fact happen, not in Britain, but in Ireland in the 1920s, in the, you know, Ireland after independence, one of the things the independence movement had done was to fight the Royal Irish Constabulary, which was the sort of the, the one that was controlled from Dublin Castle. Um, and so the Irish um, independence fighters decided they would create their own unarmed police force. And despite the fact that Ireland had just fought quite a bloody civil war, it was awash with guns from both sides, um, they decided that they would create a, a police force called the Ghana Suchana, the Civil Guard, whose members would not carry guns. Now, that, that all sounds very nice, um, but of course they also uh, had a special branch, the political force, who very much did carry guns and were continuing the kind of the civil war against the Republicans. And so... But nevertheless, if you look at the, the everyday patrolling um, and legitimacy thing that's hap that happened in Ireland between 1920, patrolled by an armed police force, up through to the 1930s, largely by a disarmed police force. And so there are, there are points when um, it's possible to disarm your police, even at times of great political contention um, and when there's a lot of guns around in society. But that was, I think, that was a specific time and it was about um, the creation of a new post-imperial Irish state which also had, had some things about it that, you know, we would look at now and think were, were pretty awful, um, as well as this unarmed police force. But it's possible to do that. I think, so what I'm trying to say, I suppose, that the answer to your question about um, is it a mistake to have armed police, it's, is it, again, it's one of those, it's more complicated than that. And it's, it's not just about, oh, your police carrying guns, it's about what else is going on in society um, and what else is your police force doing. Right. Praskilag on Instagram wants to know where do the nicknames of Bobby and Copper come from? Now, Bobby, I assume, comes from Robert Peel. Would I be right in saying that? That's right. Bobby, also Peeler, comes from Robert Peel himself. Copper is more interesting in that no one quite definitely knows where it's from. It's used in the it's used from the 1840s in the UK. We've got examples of it as a copper, referring to a police officer in London. We think that it comes from the verb to cop, as in to take, as in like copper feel or I've copped, you know, copping something, to take something or to get something. In that a police officer is the one who takes, i.e. arrests people. So it, 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 he's been copped by the coppers. 
Um, is that and that's probably that particular derivation. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. There's a rumour that the great train robbers have got military equipment and so they're going to be busting out those of them who are um, uh, being kept on remand in Leicester prison. And so the army is called in, you know, which doesn't normally happen. Um, so, think, so I think in terms of like a national panic in which no one quite... As it turns out, the great train robbers were, didn't make quite a lot of mistakes. Hardly any of them got away with it. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger, talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. And I see E. Healy on Instagram also asks, when were women first allowed in the force? Well, it's complicated, as usual. It's around the First World War when you've got um, the suffragette movement. A couple of its offshoots decide that they they should have women police that are kind of volunteers with no status for women, for making sure that women don't get into trouble, but also to police women's own behaviour. Um, and when the um, the First World War happens, suddenly there's this massive movement of peoples in the army and munitions factories. In the army, lots of young men. Munitions factories, lots and lots of young women. I mean, the one in Gretna has got like 40,000 young women working in it. And so the state obviously is turning to anywhere it can find help. And so the suffragette organisations say, well, we can use our kind of voluntary police forces as proper police if you're given the power of arrest. So the first woman who's signed up as a constable... now. A few women, you know, I mentioned earlier, you've got old-style constables, rural constables. 
We've got instances in the 17th, 18th centuries of women serving as constables. Um, nothing much in the 19th century, but we're still looking. But the first woman in the 20th century who signed up as a constable in the uniformed police force is in Grantham. Um, and that's early 1915. And Grantham is near a lot of military camps. It's got a lot of munitions industry. And the local police force say, well, we want to kind of basically is keeping keeping the soldiers away from the local girls and vice versa is the thing that's worrying the authorities. Although a lot of the um, early suffragette police um, pioneers are actually thinking about protecting women from domestic violence, for example, as well. Um, and so they decide, right, we'll we'll sign up we'll sign up at least one woman and see how it works. And then it's Ministry of Munitions under Lloyd George. They also sign up women um, as police constables with powers of arrest to help police these massive munitions factories. After the First World War, at which point a lot, a lot of different police forces had kind of done this emergency measures, there's this kind of back to normal and let's cut all the public expenditure. And so a lot of the police forces say, we want to cut the women police officers out completely now. We'll stop using them. And there's a bit of a backlash against this, which is successfully goes through Parliament. Eventually, so the Met keep on employing women um, and certain other police forces do as well. But there's no um, there's no central control over police in England, don't forget, <laughs> for a long time. And, of course, police are able legally to discriminate against women until 1975, which is the first time that anti-discrimination legislation comes in. And so it's not until right up to then that women have got the equal right to join and to be promoted and to be treated equally. So there's this process throughout the 20th century that starts in the First World War and, in theory at least, is over um, in the mid-1970s. Though in practice, of course, as we're seeing, it only really ends probably in the early 21st century in terms of exclusion of women from certain police roles. Sure, I was, I was going to ask, I mean, did they face much dis- discrimination? What, I mean, what was the reaction of their male counterparts generally to, to women being in the force? It's huge and it's quite unpleasant to go down and look through. If you look particularly look at the 1960s, look at the cartoons in Police Review and it's just cringy. Basically, there's a massive amount of antipathy, which reflects at the time, obviously, the antipathy to women in um, in wider society. And there's a lot of resentment about women taking traditional male roles. There's this really interesting moment in the early 70s, sorry, early 60s, where um, as a publicity stunt, a lot of police forces decide to get fashion fashion designers to design the police women's uniform and they get norman hart and all the met do to design this uniform which is just completely impractical I and mean, at least the early 1920s uniforms were sort of big baggy jackets with a lot of pockets you know you could put things in this is like uh you know they they try and put police women in mini skirts and then they then they say oh, it's just a bit of fun when they complain there's they're being asked to carry truncheons and their gear around in a handbag so things like that which Actually, it's the world that I grew up in in the 70s, which which was kind of normal. Um, we look back now and we just think, yeah, we can see quite a lot of sexism here, can't we? And what's going on in that period in the 50s and 60s is you've got like a, there's a, a small group of police women under a, an inspector of constabulary called Dorothy Pito, who's basically kind of def- trying to defend their position locally and trying to sort of prevent police women from getting this kind of level of harassment um, and this level of kind of um, it's pretty much it's it's verbal abuse, you know, um, and and they're they're all they kind of working through to 1975 when the um, employment becomes equal. 
But in some respects, 1975 um, takes away this kind of pro- some of the protections that women had because they, they used to have kind of separate command chains, which would mean that there was a woman in the police force who was a senior officer who could kind of, kind of keep the male senior officers under control. Um, and that, that then went with the integration in 75. So the, the kind of actual genuine equality insofar as it's already arrived, if anything, takes a bit of a step back in the 70s and 80s as well. Um, so it's, yeah, it's not a particularly edifying story, I'm afraid. Right, Chris, I'm going to run three quick fire questions past you before we move on to meet your questions later. The first one is from Juliet Nola, who asks, have police always wore a uniform and why is it blue? Not always blue. I mean, so, for example, I mentioned everything's local in the 19th century. So Staffordshire set up and they, they take the Irish example of a, of a dark green uniform. Um, yeah, Scottish uniforms were more likely to be black. And it was from Scotland that we get the flat cap. Essentially, it's a sort of civilian version of military dress. And if you look at police uniforms over the years, they look like um, military uniforms. But blue is a colour that... Um, doesn't really get used very much by the the army of course it does get used by the navy and the RAF so that becomes a sort of a way of having someone who dresses like a soldier but is not a soldier and that's probably the easiest short answer I could give you and here's one from somebody called Sis One who wants to know when were police boxes introduced and what were their original purpose oh that's a really interesting long question (laughs) and if any of you can get hold of a book by a guy called Jack Bunker about the rise and fall of the police box. It's great. Um, so, yeah, check that one out. Shorter. They're introduced in the 1890s, various different places, as ways that members of the public can contact the police because people, particularly rich people, are worried about getting burgled and they've got telephones and they ask the right to call the police from their own houses. But at this point, there's no kind of 999 system and so if you look at London, the, the, the superintendents all meet up and say, if we have this, we'll be completely overwhelmed by calls. We don't want this to happen. We'll give, we'll give them like a police box in the areas where they're mo- most worried and, and call out loudest and they can phone from there. Then, though, after the First World War, I'm um, starting off in Sunderland in 1923. There's a whole other system of police boxes turns up, which in which basically each box is a mini police station. It's a way of keeping track of lots of constables to make sure they're on time, on their beats all the time. Um, Sunderland saves a lot of money because they're trying to save money in the 20s um, by setting off its five police stations across different bits of the city, keeps the big headquarters and says to the constables, now when you're booking on your shift, you book on in the police box, you phone your sergeant up to say you're there, you will then kind of go do your beat and every 45 minutes or every hour you'll nip into a police box, not necessarily your own, to phone in and say, yep, I'm here now and your sergeant will tick a, tick a box to say, yep, he's still doing his job and that was basically a, a, a saving, a money-saving measure. It's also a way of getting hold of reaching constables. Um, you know, pre-radios. If you want, you, if your constable, you want your constable to respond to something. What you do is you would then put the light on on the TARDIS, and when he came round the corner, he would see it, and he would he would know that he had to unlock the the phone and ring in to say, "Oh, you know, what do you want me to do?" So it's a way of getting hold of of police constables on the beat. But it's also a way of saving money. The last one gets taken out in um in the early 1980s because it was a there was a, a bit of London that was a flat spot for radio reception. So they kept a police box in. And there's still lots of them lying around. You know, it's always good to go around spotting them. This is a bit of a hobby of mine, as you might say. Edinburgh's got some really good ones. So if you're in Edinburgh, go around spotting the police boxes. Yeah, next time I'll, I'll have a look, yeah. And final quick fire question. Um, 
when did police start to go undercover? I mean, is that something they've always done or is it something? It's something they've always done and they've always not wanted to talk about. So even in the early days of the Met, which is theoretically a uniformed force, they are obviously sending out people in plain clothes to catch criminals or, mis- or miscreants. And they're not really talking about it later when this happens. So they're very much in favour of being seen as a uniform force, but also, you know, sending people undercover when necessary. Cool. Now, this question, I, I suspect, is going to be quite tough to answer, but I'm going to run it past you anyway. Historically, which case or cases would you say did most to shape or influence the evolution of the British police force? Oh, yeah, you're right. That's a, that is another <laughs> million. That's a $2 million question. I'm going to say, and this is probably going to get a lot of people saying, what about Jack the Ripper? Peter Sutcliffe, the hunt for Peter Sutcliffe, known as the Yorkshire Ripper, in the 1970s um, was carried out with varying degrees of competence by a lot of different police forces across the whole north of England. Um, and one of the things that it, it showed up was that detectives using different systems, they were recording things in different ways, and they created this massive information that, that they couldn't actually trawl, that information overload. In fact, they had collected enough information to realise it was Sutcliffe, but because it had been this huge, sprawling investigation with hundreds of people, um, they didn't have the admin skills to to work that one out, to put two and two together. And eventually he's arrested in Sheffield at random. Um, not be- and the investigation had literally nothing to do with the fact that he was caught. So what happens then is that um, the Home Office puts in something which they they pick the acronym HOLMES for. The Home Office, large, major, um, it's essentially they, they backfill this acronym. They have to have a line around this, which, which, become, which is a computer system, but it's mainly a how-to-do detection system. And it's a way of, of unifying and essentially nationalising the, the process so any murder investigation since then you know, has been not a brilliant, brilliant detective walks in and uses her intuition. Instead, it's, OK, here's a list of people we've got to talk to. This is how we're going to record their statements. This is how we're going to compare, how we're going to eliminate, boom, boom, boom. So that probably of any one crime, that has shaped the way that murder has been investigated in England and Wales for the last 40 years. And actually, if you look at the clear up rate for murder, it's incredibly high. Yeah, the British police have, have, in the last four years, been incredibly good at throwing resources at every murder. And I mean, some forces have got like 99% clear up rates. Now, another question we've had in is who would you rate as the most wanted criminal since records began? I mean, would that be the Yorkshire Ripper or can you think of alternatives? It's difficult to work out. And you kind of, if you're sort of measuring, um, how you're measuring it in terms of effort, in terms of like whether or not procedures were sort of thrown up in the air to be honest i'll put in a i'm going to put in one there this isn't something that's got a definite answer but the great train robbers actually um 1960s um there was a lot of fear and panic about how well organized and how sort of how large scale that particular robbery was and so the hunt for them involved a lot of um forces just dropping everything and looking for them it also involved some sort of what can pretty much panic measures, actually. I mean, locally to me in Leicester, um, there's a rumour that the great train robbers have got military equipment and so they're going to be busting out those of them who are um, uh, being kept on remand in Leicester prison. And so the army is called in, you know, which doesn't normally happen. Um, so So I think in terms of like a national panic in which no one quite, as it turns out, the great train robbers were, didn't make quite a lot of mistakes. Hardly any of them got away with it. Um, and, in fact, I think now Briggs came back, didn't he? So none of them got away with it in the end. But 
at the time, it was seen as quite a uniquely frightening crime. And so the hunt for them sort of involved quite a lot of what can only be described as panic, I think. Now, you touched on this when you're talking about the, uh, the, uh, the Yorkshire Ripper case. But one question I wanted to ask you is, how has, how has the role of the police officer changed over the past century? If, I mean, if you could outline sort of two or three examples of how, how it's been transformed in that time, what would they be? Radios. Yep. So your, um, your average police officer now is in contact with the headquarters. They can call up backup. And that's been the case since the late 1960s and that's a that's a massive game cha- game changer they've also police national computer since the mid 70s they've got access to information about who they're talking to in a way that they never had before so the job has completely changed the other thing that's completely changed about the job is it's about response now not about patrol so the kind of if you are a a bobby in 1870, your job is mainly walking around at night because most of the patrol is happening at night and, you know, talking to whoever you might find, looking at what you might see. If you are a police officer now in um, the early 21st century, you're mainly in a car responding to calls from the public. And so you're interacting with the people, you're interacting with moments of crisis all the time rather than just being in the city and pounding the, the beat. Um, this means that if anything, actually, the job has got more stressful because you're more likely to be involved in an argument at any one time than you were 150 years ago. On the other hand, you've also got a lot more backup and a lot more access to information than you had 150 years ago. How badly have accusations of institutional racism and corruption tarnished the reputation of the British police over the last few decades? This is one where they've almost like taking it in turns to do one then the other. And there's a really interesting moment in the McPherson inquiry. When the, if you read the McPherson inquiry, what you actually get there, this is in late, 19, late 1990s into the, um, the murder of Stephen Lawrence and the s- several botched investigations into it. Um, there's actually a lot of evidence about corruption in there. Um, but the, the press, the inquiry itself and the Met chose to focus on the racism, of which there was also some, um, as the big response to me. And I think the fact that the press and the inquiry were also actors in here is really important because most of this is about what gets in the papers. Um, and until we get Leaves and Two to find the, the relationships between the, um, the the press and the police, we're probably not going to know quite a lot. But it's worthwhile also digging out the investigation into the murder of Daniel Morgan, which finally came out after decades Um quite recently, which would suggest that that kind of corruption of certainly policing in certain parts of South London continued to be a problem after the murder of Stephen Lawrence. So it's all quite entangled. Um, and But reputation is actually all about what, what, the pre- what the papers want to print, just as much as it is about um, what's going on. Sure, finally, with that question in mind, what do you think the future looks like for British policing? Can you do you envisage dramatic changes over the next couple of decades? There's always been bubbling under the, for the last kind of, well, 50 or 60 years, the fact that in practice policing is national or regional. It's, and the old kind of 44 county systems don't actually work very well to deliver accountability. It's a bit weird. It's, well, not, it's not the place you'd start from if you, um, if you were starting from here. A lot of it's about back office functions that are now regionalised or about community patrol functions, which either should be or ought to be sort of more ultra-localised. 
And so if you look at what's going on in Ireland with the creation of the PSNI or in Scotland with the creation of Police Scotland, um, we found this kind of uh, finally a shift towards a larger force that's directly accountable to the government, but has locally has all accountability vehicles as well, particularly in Ireland. So it always strikes me that if there is a if there is a sort of big crisis of confidence in British policing, any time in the next fifteen years, and and there'd have to be a crisis of confidence because the system only ever gets reformed when people think it might be broken. Um, then the direction things might move in is towards a national or regional forces, um, or recognising that these things already exist, and. But on the other hand, in day-to-day encounters with police, what's written on the side of their cars might change, but how the encounter's going to work is unlikely to change very much. But, you know, that's a kind of, I don't know, I'd give it like a one-in-three chance. It all, all, as ever, it all depends on what happens with the rest of politics, um, which policing is intimately connected with. That was Chris Williams. His book, Police Control Systems in Britain, 1775 to 1975, is published by Manchester University Press. If you're interested in the history of crime and punishment, then we've got plenty more on our website, historyextra.com, with articles on everything from 1930s cat burglars and the British prison system to six notorious unsolved crimes. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley.